What do you got for your light? Some noggles that are at home right now, because I keep on forgetting to put them on in the morning. Why don't you just throw them into your bag? I will try. It's kind of hilarious. It's like on my, right beside my bed. <laughs> Great place to keep them. What are you recording? Recording you. You're on my podcast. Big Jump Boyfriend Podcast! Welcome to another edition of the Bike Shop Boyfriend Podcast. This is episode 39. Sorry it's been a bit of a hiatus, but, uh, well, really no excuse for it. But here we go. Uh, on this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, how I'm curing my Tour de France hangover. Um, going to be talking about Trek and the recent demo day that we had there, as well as Phil Guyman's new rules and Strava Premium. Is it still worth it? This and a little bit more coming up. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 39. I'm your host, The Bike Shop Boyfriend, Dustin. Uh, As always, you can get in touch with me on Instagram as well as Twitter at D-U-S-T-I-N-W-H-T. That is both the handle for both Twitter and Instagram. Um, Welcome to the episode. So, just to catch you up on a few things, uh, the bike shop has been a little bit busy. We've had some staff uh, had to leave recently just due to personal issues. Uh, some of them are going to school already, so they took off. Um, so a bit of a scheduling here and there. Um, one of my coworkers and uh, good buddies uh, for the road rides uh, hasn't had the best health this particular summer. So uh, things have been a little bit stressful on that front. Uh, Having done my previous episode about group rides, uh, it's a little ironic in that way. Um, Also in the, uh, we've just been busy. Uh, So coming home uh, after working really, really long days, trying to get the the gumption to put together a podcast episode that I think is worthy enough for you to listen to. it's, it's been a little bit of a uh, having to wait for the material to come to me in a lot of ways. Um, so finally happy to f- sit down after a long day uh, and put together this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, in this particular episode, uh, as mentioned in the intro, we had Trek uh, about two, three weeks ago uh, come into uh, Winnipeg. This is actually the first time in a long time that Trek ha- Trek Bicycles has come to the prairies um, to show off their wares. Clint, who is our brand spanking new uh, district sales rep uh, for Trek Bicycle, um, he's a talented beast. I have to give him his due credit. He spent a solid nine hours in the sun baking. Uh, we try to get him underneath his own tent. Uh, and just due to the tunes, I had audio for it. Uh, that particular interview and interaction. Um, however, due to the tunes and the generator, um, the, the audio was not usable. It was just you listening to white noise and a little bit of conversation. Uh, so it was very much not worth saving there. Um, the bikes that were on offer, surprise, surprise, were not road bikes for the most part. Uh, it was the Trek Top Fuel 2.9er. Um, it was actually a very sought after ride, and I actually learned a lot of the technology and 
thinking behind the bike when I finally actually got to see it in person. So that was actually a very cool uh, product to see up close, as well as the Fuel EX 9.8. That is actually a full-on, fairly swish, all-trail mountain bike. Um, a lot of positive reception on that one. Um, I would say the bike is a little bit too much for what uh, the location where we were doing the demo ride itself, Birds Hill Park. Um, I would have said it would have been better suited for the uh, Bison Butte Trail that is here locally that was used for the Canada Games course, uh, mountain bike course. Even that too is still uh, maybe not doing it fairly the right amount of justice. Um, but it's a fully capable, it's a bit of a beast on the trails. Uh, it takes a lot of aggression to get the full use out of that particular bike. Um, and lastly, one of the other bikes that I really thought was really interesting was the Powerfly 7 uh, e-mountain bikes. Um, very, very sleek in their design in terms of the battery integration and pedal assist. Um, I'm all for e-bikes being used for mobility and also for folks that are coming maybe back from an injury uh, to maybe enjoy uh, being on the trail again, this and that. Um, however, my only caveat is that the herky-jerkiness of how well that pedal assist interacts with the rider and the overall ride quality. Um, I, I've been guilty of it and I finally understand I finally understand the positives of e-bikes e in general, um, but in terms of an e-mountain bike and even an e-road bike, I've seen this happen too, is that you kind of just put a little bit of wattage or torque into the crank arm uh, of your bike and it will actually start, it'll give a violent shudder even though you're not giving a full-on torque or crank. Um, if anything, I would suggest for engineers of these pedal assist engines is that if they could um, maybe allow for like two or three actual rotations of the crank itself before um, the e-assist kicks in I think would be a huge step forward for people getting into it because right now it's a lot of herky-jerkiness and it's a little bit of an intimidating thing if it does feel like the bike itself is alive uh, and just wanting to rip down a trail which could be a little too much for some folks um, and I think like one or two pedal revolutions before it would kick in uh, could actually be a great saving grace especially in a stop sort of situation uh, on a trail or even on uh, in a road type situation um, just to get up and going kind of again um, but that being said those three bikes were really really cool to see up close and actually get a lot of positive uh, customer feedback from the demo um, and a huge again up uh, up shout out and applause to Clint of Trek Bicycles for doing that also shout out to my partner in crime for that day Carol um, she's currently on a bit of a leave of absence right now taking care of some personal stuff um, one I miss working with her day to day she's just a little bright ray of sunshine also try to get her uh, audio on that uh, try to pick her brain about women in uh, bike shop sort of setting uh, hopefully I'll get her on the podcast soon enough uh, when she's feeling a little bit better but uh, that being said uh, yeah it was a great demo day beautiful weather couldn't ask for better um, we did capture it for the bike shop so that's 
definitely out there in the internets. Um, additionally, uh, I wanted to mention Bontrager's accessories. Um, as a brand, they're doing actually some very interesting things with the shoes and helmets. Um, my biggest thing was that I noticed that uh, on the shoe front, the Triple X is actually getting a bit of a reconsideration of the way the BOA ratcheting mechanism on is going to get relocated from on top of the arch of your foot to the back of your heel. Um, and I was actually very, very curious. I'm very curious actually to get my hands on a pair of these just to see how they fit. Um, the shoe last itself without securing it. It's a little bit roomy for my particular foot. However, I will be fully acknowledging that I have narrow feet. Um, but great mid arch support. Um, and if you have a slightly wider foot, uh, i.e. a bit more of a North American foot, as they call it, um, I think Bontrager could actually be a great fit for a lot of riders out there. And then also on the helmet front, the underbrim uh, of their mid to upper tier helmets all actually have the underbrim protected with the acrylic shell, the hard shell that's actually onto it. Um, and actually getting to try one on the fit of the helmet actually around the temples and on the uh, top of uh, my skull slash crown area has vastly been improved. I cannot actually be more astonished by that particular thing uh, revelation when trying these on. Um, that was actually kind of like the surprise of the demo for me was actually seeing how well the helmets actually fit. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, so much so that I'm actually strongly considering uh, looking at getting one as my new helmet for uh, it won't be next year. Actually, it'll be at the end of next year. Uh, I've got one more year left on this cask helmet that I'm currently riding in. Um, but it's definitely on my short list to consider getting uh, going forward. So that was the Trek demo. Um, if you came out to it, uh, hopefully you enjoyed the bright sunny day. Love to hear what your impressions are. And if there's any sort of product that you want to know further from Trek, uh, please let me know. I am hoping to actually get a follow up with Clint here on the podcast. Alright, so probably you have noticed uh, if you are keeping your fingers on the pulse of cycling culture for the most part. Um, Phil Guyman, recent retiree, worst retiree ever, uh, also the host of Worst Retirement Ever on YouTube, do check him out. Um, he posted something on his fillthethrill.net uh, website called The New Rules. Uh, also, he called it the Philmanati. I can't even pronounce it. Um, but he pronounced, sorry, he posted these rules and it's a bit of a revision on the Voluminati, uh, website that has these very archaic, archaic tongue in cheek type rules that some people take a little too seriously, mind you. Um, but they're very tongue in cheek about cycling culture in general. And I would definitely recommend you check out both sources, form your own opinions, check them out. But um, I do have to say that I really like how they are good-natured and pretty much advocate to not be a dick. Those are his words. Um, while riding your bike. Um, the one that really stood out to me, and I quote, 
uh, in traffic, we take the space we need, obey the laws that make sense to for us, and try to be courteous. Pedestrians have right of way. If you want cars to respect cyclists, cyclists have to re- respect people on foot. I couldn't agree more. However, there's a few caveats to Phil's rule here. Um, pedestrians who are walking their dogs with an extra long leash at an uncontrolled crosswalk. I'm sorry, you're kind of creating like a clotheslines type situation that is actually very dangerous for myself as a rider. Um, also, the fact that you're at an uncontrolled crosswalk does not mean I have to stop. Motorists don't have to stop for you. Uh, and technically me being on the road, I don't necessarily have to stop you. And this is actually stemming from a recent incident uh, a week or two ago uh, where this situation actually did occur for me. Um, the pedestrian had a leash that was over seven to eight feet long and put the dog out in front. Uh, the dog was way was already in the road and the pedestrian was just leaving the curb. Now, I don't know how you feel about being a dog owner or even just this type of situation. Um, something that I love like that, I would, in terms of a pet, I'm very dog loving, friendly person. Um, although I don't own any, uh, that is a goal by the way, um, to let a dog go that far into traffic without you leaving the curb kind of thing. One is a I say a bit of laziness. Secondly, it's also a bit of cowardice on your part to not take a bit more active role in uh, participating with your dog. Uh, and two, the fact that I also went behind that pedestrian by about a solid four to five feet, not to scare either the pedestrian, and I made eye contact with him, and also not to scare the dog because sometimes dogs can be territorial and that dog can come whipping right back at me trying to like defend its owner, rightfully so. Um, I wasn't... I was riding completely predictable, low speed, uh, no one was at risk, but the pedestrian had to give a snide comment of, I'm walking here kind of thing. Um, Fair play, I guess. Um, But also motorists uh, at a four-way intersection. When motorists hesitate and as a roadie, uh, I'm coming to a stop. If that person is hesitating, I'm sorry, I'm smaller, I'm going to go for it. Uh, I figure, one, if I'm being completely predictable uh, in terms of uh, communicating my intent of action, um, in terms of either going straight, turning left, turning right, um, I do gesture, I do sign, I do try and make sure that uh, eye contact is made before proceeding. Usually motorists, if they even have the right of way, they're pretty good about just waving you through just to make sure that you are moving faster. Um, And also, too, uh, we do have something called the Idaho Stop. Uh, It's a bit of a traffic law that means that if it is safe for a cyclist to slow down and proceed through that stop, um, they can continue on, whereas a motorist does have to come to a full stop before proceeding through that intersection. Um, That is just to maintain the flow of traffic and also... Uh, a cyclist blowing through an intersection like that uh, at most will kill a flower a motorist who would blow through an intersection like that is going to kill another human being or worse Um, so that's one of those situations that uh, pick your battles there motorists Um, just heads up Uh, if you've taken a look at uh, Phil Guyman's new rules there I want to hear what you think about it if there was one that stood out to you Hit me up here on anchor.fm. Love to have a conversation.
Alright, so if you're kind of like me and you followed the entire Tour de France this past year, despite how you feel about results and this and that and who crashed out and who didn't make time cuts and who won uh, or who didn't win even, um, I'm curing a bit of a Tour de France hangover. And by me curing it, uh, I've sort of begun watching um, more Tour de France highlights is like how I'm sort of dealing with this hangover. Um, so currently I'm watching highlights in specifically about the 2003 edition. Uh, just an FYI, for those of cycling history, it is Lance's fifth uh, consecutive Tour de France victory. Um, and I'm trying to figure out why this edition is considered to be a great edition of the race. In comparison with recent ones, I'd say of approximately uh the 90s eh, even from like 94 maybe even 1990 until now so it's quite an extensive range um and it's a very curious uh time capsule of a bygone era of technology and practice for sure so this is actually the height of the blood doping um epo using microdosing, um all that bad behavior of cyclists and all that um but I was more fascinated by uh, a few things. One was the trend of how bikes are fitted back then. They had super wide bars, uh, wider than I would say the shoulder width of the rider who is riding the bike. Um, and too much saddle height, uh, no matter the rider. That was like two big observations I noticed right off the gun. Um, Right now, currently in 2018, the current trend is for the bars to be uh, as close to the shoulder width as possible, depending on the discipline, of course. And the saddle height is ideal when the pelvis and the hips maintain stability on the bike uh, during the pedal stroke. There's a few other nuances to those caveats, by the way. Um, but back in 2003, there was a lot of toe down. It looked like everyone was trying to touch the their toes to the bottom of the pool as probably the best analogy I can give you for how people's feet look. Um, and I'm actually very curious if this caused like a lot of discomfort, um, maybe potential saddle sore issues. Um, who knows? But uh, yeah, it looks like everyone was kind of guilty of riding in this particular way. It looked very uncomfortable. Um, another thing that I noticed was uh, time trial bikes have come a hell of a long way. Um, it's almost the equivalent of looking at uh, an old Model T Ford vehicle, or Ford Model T is how I should phrase that, um, versus, I would say, a modern-day Tesla-type um, vehicle. So that being said, yes, it's four wheels in, the, in this particular analogy, and one is going from uh, early combustible engine to uh, full-on electric. Um, not to say that current TT bikes have electric engines or motors in them, but what I am saying is that they have come a long, long way. Uh, the handlebar uh, control area of the bike is super, super clean. The handlebars themselves uh, are in a particular shape nowadays um, and also a particular height. The tubing has come a long way. The front forks, again, huge, huge uh, changes there, um, as well as the rear of the bike, too. Uh, you're noticing that the rear triangle has actually descended down uh, so that there's not a lot of rear triangle on a time trial bike. Um, I watched the time trial that started off actually in Paris. 
that just took off down the Champs Elysees. Um, that was actually very interesting, and also the fact that um, this sort of ties into my third point was that uh, there was a lot of baggy bibs and jerseys still, um, with helmets that had a lot more pointy ends on it, more so than even a full-blown male elk would have uh, during their full rut. Um, a lot of pointy helmets. I'm like surprised no one got impaled by this. Uh, and it's speaking actually on the subject subject of helmets. Um, I watched one of the climbs, uh, mountain finishes, summit finishes, I should be calling it. Um, in that the riders would remove, like they'd be racing it uh, full on, full tilt to the base of the final climb. And at the base of the climb, you would see the entire peloton or the contenders all slow down, remove their helmets and then race up the top of the climb. This was sort of suggesting that they were moving at such a slow pace that if they fell, they would not necessarily hit their head. Nowadays, the practices, they have to keep their helmet on at all times, uh, no matter what. Um, but otherwise, they were wearing their helmets throughout the rest of the court, uh, the stage itself. But it was just very interesting to see um, no helmets being used for the final climb just so that you can, I guess, identify them better on TV. Um, maybe that's something that the sport itself is lacking, but I'd rather see the riders be safe than sorry with uh, a potential slow collision fall. If they can break uh, backs, femurs, uh, wrists, and collarbones at slow speed, they can easily concuss themselves and do worse uh, to a head injury. So I'd rather them wear a helmet, of course. Um, but that being said, um, it was just very interesting observations. And that's how I'm actually uh, solving my Tour de France hangover. Um, very curious as to how you, how you're feeling after the month of July. Um, curious if you're just riding your bike just to enjoy being outside again. Uh, if you maybe took the month of July off uh, to watch the tour. Um, what are your plans going in for maybe the Vuelta or even European Championships, which are just finished up actually this past week um past weekend i should say um and going into the world championships very curious uh how you go about it if you got anything to uh, let me know how you're dealing with it let me know in the comments of below love to hear from you Alright, so I don't got much more to mention here, but just check the quickly checking my notes. Ah, two more things left. Okay, so um, recently uh, the UCI president uh, has come out and he said that he wants to sort of implement what are, for lack of a better word, anti Team Sky measures. Um, to pretty much quell their dominance in like Grand Tours and the Tour de France in particular, I guess. Um, from my own opinion, and it actually is the mandate of the UCI, um, it's up to the UCI to enforce existing rules to create a safer sport and not to affect the outcome of racers, uh, of races and not necessarily of the racers. Um, but for a UCI president, it's very much showing a bias towards one particular team when... Um, there's a few other ways that he can channel uh, this sort of energy towards change, I would call it. Um, 
One would be uh, better energy and effort spent making the Peloton safer, um, perhaps reducing the amount of TV moto bikes and maybe discipline the drivers who get in the way of or get too close or even help the riders. Um, perhaps penalize uh, the riders who take advantage of the block, uh, the wind blocking potential of those uh, motorbikes, um, and also perhaps like fine the drivers should they cause a collision for the um, for the riders an actual fine uh, in terms of like financial payment. Just you know, uh, if you want to really make someone feel the pain of something, hit them in the pocketbook. It works for people when they get a parking ticket and it works for uh possibly in this type of situation too where there's um people being at risk uh of coming too close to uh motorbikes that are part of the organization um and also why not use these efforts uh to scold and pressure the aso who are the uh organizers of the tour de france uh into making a better effort slash offering uh than a one-day gimmick race uh for the women's world tour um la course which was uh, in itself a thrilling race not really televised promoted or anything like that um when there's just so much clamor for there's too much money in the sport or not enough parity this and that those type of arguments how's about you they the uci mandate that uh, the women in the world tour actually get a basic salary or equalize the prize money um where is that sort of not being advocated for um that's just my view uh also too i do have the alternative view of i understand women wanting to ride the exact same race as the men's tour but if the gatekeepers aren't letting you in i would say work with the gatekeepers slash organizers that are gonna really promote women's racing in a positive light and actually give you the race that women deserve um i would love to see a three-week women's race uh on par for uh the prestige of what the tour de france is and i really believe the tour de france is not necessarily the best race to watch it's one of the oldest and it's most prestigious because it has history behind it um and i feel that women's racing in the modern age that we're in now um i think that they need to maybe look at new landscapes slash uh markets in and of itself that want to promote women's cycling um personally i would love to see uh, an american women's three-week tour uh that went all across the united states which would be amazing uh i think that would really showcase uh america really well uh canada would also i think really benefit from a three-week women's race too um on a smaller scale that would probably show and highlight more nation per square meter i would almost call it um would actually be england uh, i'd love to see them do a uk three-week women's race um those are just my suggestions right off the gate um and i think it would actually very, be very very popular with uh women and just spectators of the sport in general uh i think the women would be showcased really well and there's a lot of terrain that could prove challenging for the race itself um also another particular reason why i sort of take issue with the way the uci president is uh going about his anti-team sky measures here or suggestions even um that his comments are pretty much targeting one particular team uh for being so dominant uh mostly because that 
team is very much focused on winning a grand tour, being on the top step. Um, whereas teams like uh, Quickstep, for instance, uh, dominate the um, the Spring Classics to a large extent, and they actually have the most wins of the year. Uh, I'm very curious as to why they're not being targeted for winning so many races. Um, is it because possibly Team Sky is considered a bit of an outsider team? Uh, too soon, too dominant is maybe the problem. Um, maybe those are just the issues, but why is the bias only looking at one team that's so dominant in one particular field, whereas Quickstep has shown that uh, season in, season out, they've been the most winningest team uh, in the World Tour uh, for, ooh, I'd say close to 20-some-odd years now. Uh, even when they were the Mape team before that. Um, I find that very interesting. Um, additionally, the desire to reduce teams uh, further in terms of um, how many riders would ride uh, in a Grand Tour, it would actually start eliminating the spots on rosters that could have geolocation implications. And what I mean by this is there would be less spots for Africans, Asian, Middle Eastern centered riders who wouldn't get a spot otherwise because um, of those, say, say six spots, um, they're going to be really centered around the European racer. So you're not really ever going to see diversity in the peloton. Um, and I really feel like last I checked, the UCI president was elected by the federations that make up the voting body for that particular role. Um, shouldn't they be represented in the peloton itself uh and shouldn't the president try and represent those traditionally non-cycling nations as well i'm just saying um if it's a global position why is the bias sort of trying to center on maybe the anglo-speaking uh type nations that are doing really well uh that's just putting it out there really um and for those reasons, I have to say, like, I don't feel like he is being a president of a sporting body that is trying to enable and affect race outcomes uh, and race results. Um, and for that, like the anti-team and for my anti-team Sky listeners, uh, hey, great and all, but uh, dominance does exist in sport. And for one athlete, one team uh, will dominate a sport, but it will never be forever. And dynasties end sooner than later. Um, everyone thinks that it's going to be a solid 10-year span. Who knows? Maybe it is. Um, but often the end of a dynasty comes way too soon and it falls all too quickly. Um, great examples were uh, Miguel Indoran, uh, who actually quit uh, one stage in the Giro and we never saw him again. Uh, another rider would be... Uh, uh, I can't quite say Lance Armstrong because he just retired and he didn't show back up and there was no real petering off of uh, performance and talent. It, he mostly retired just due to um, lack of sponsorship to pay him the big bucks to keep racing, really. Uh, the money ran out um, of the sport for him to be involved in it. Um, and even then, too, when Lance did retire and people were competing for uh, the Tour de France's post-Lance, that first retirement, I would call it. Uh, viewership wasn't terribly great, let's be honest. Uh, the narrative of someone trying to beat Lance was gone. Um, and that was something of the excitement of, can Lance 
take on all defenders or all rivals kind of thing and try and win. Um, no matter how you feel about Lance or that era and, you know, even playing field and this and that. Um, I'm the one with the microphone right now, but they all had the same access to the same drugs, same doctors, and a lot of them were found out to be on the same doctor in particular's uh, financial bill that he had the receipts kind of thing. Uh, Operation Puerto is a great example of this. Um, it's one of those things that, you know, the dynasties end eventually at one point. Um, and even then too, um, so when these dynasties end, I will probably applaud uh, those that actually come out on top. Um, unless it's Vincenzo Nibali, uh, who I feel is a bum, or it's Astana. And this is me just as a sports fan uh, who's a fan roadside. Um, Astana, the whole team is a bunch of bums. Uh, I do not like Astana and I do not like Vincenzo Nibali. Um, and whoever beats Sky, like kudos to them. They did a great job. Hey, you beat a dominant team. Um, but this is also sort of getting back to, I guess, the election process of itself uh, is that the UCI president is elected by federations, which creates a lot of uh, backroom dealing, I would say. And if the UCI wants to make cycling more interesting, how how's about they put the vote to um, the hand or into the hands of the members that hold an actual UCI race license? Uh, myself, uh, I used to buy a UCI race license uh, here in Canada. It costs approximately a hundred plus dollars to get one um i think it's 130 dollars right now but i can totally be wrong on that but it's around 100 bucks um and as the canadian cycling federation uh totally dropped the ball on me i heard that they voted for uh la Pera, uh who's the current uci president uh and that does not represent my view or my vote uh therefore it is like I find the Canadian Cycling Federation, pretty much all federations, uh, pretty much a lobbying group that has its own interests and agenda. Fair play to them. But if they are trying to represent uh, a democratic federation uh, and one person to represent that federation at the top job there, um, I really feel like no person who owns a race license actually has an actual say in who gets elected. So that's just my viewpoint uh hopefully that came out somewhat coherent it is kind of close to midnight here and i'm kind of uh drawing to a close my podcast but that's my views on uh, the uci presidency at the moment uh, the comments are very uncalled for and uh not needed at this time i would say uh reform should be coming from organizers as well as from all stakeholders uh Maybe there should be a reduction of teams in the overall world tour. However, um, there's a lot of talent out there too that, you know, um, less is more could be possibly an argument. Yes. Uh, in terms of how many people are in the grand tours, but also they found very quickly this year that, uh, having eight man squads, um, really killed a lot of breakaways. There's only two breakaways that actually succeeded uh, this particular Grand Tour, whereas when they had nine, um, the breakaways actually had more of a standing chance to actually stay away and uh, win the stage, which makes the stages uh, a bit more exciting that way. Um, 
yeah, if you have any questions or uh, comments about uh, the UCI president or how the UCI itself is run, love to hear from you. This is a bit of an ongoing conversation, uh, so expect more of that in the future. But uh, yeah, I think that ties this segment up quite nicely. All right, Strava Premium. So uh, with one minute to go before midnight here, and as I'm chatting away, um, last segment, Strava Premium is uh, restructuring itself and rebranding its premium offering to something, to the new Summit, and I'm using air quotes. Sorry, you can't see this, by the way. Uh, Summit feature. um, And it is, my question is, is it worth it? So as of August 14th, I will no longer be a Strava Premium subscriber. Um, Having been a premium Strava, this is actually really mouthful, by the way. Uh, Having been a Strava Premium subscriber for the past, oh, I'd say three, three three-ish years, maybe four years, um, the pricing versus... uh, the pricing value versus the feature and uh, special offer incentives weren't there for me. Um, as a long-time reviewer, the one, uh, sorry, the one special offer that I did actually use was a Science and Sport uh, promotion code that uh, I got some free gels, um, or I got 20, 20%? Yeah, I believe 20% off uh my actual order, but due to the fact that it was ordered for something that was uh, coming from overseas and the duty was not waived, uh, it actually cost me more than the 20% savings that I did get from my initial order. It would have been nice to know that uh, when I ordered it, so uh, that was a bit of a double-edged kick in the pants there. and also the new structuring feature that they're offering for the Summit features, I feel that they don't really live up to the new price point for what is required. It really feels like they just chopped up and uh, are repackaging what they already have. There's nothing really new. The only new part of this is that they have chopped it up and they're only offering parts of it, or you can buy the whole enchilada and you can get all of it. Um, and from what I would like, for my own fitness needs and tracking. Um, I just don't find the value of it. So uh, as of today, uh, it's now midnight plus one minute um, on August 14th. I'm reverting back to uh, basic Strava features. Um, I'm totally okay with that. I'm using uh, a few other apps, which I'll talk about momentarily. Uh, and lastly, um, I oddly enough, would still recommend Strava Summit uh, slash the premium feature um, to a lot of folks that are wanting to maybe get into tracking uh, their performance, maybe getting their feet wet as to long-term tracking of performance. Um, There's a lot of great features to Strava Summit that uh, is very easy to approach and not feel like you're getting in over your head with the amount of data that it can potentially throw at you. They do put it pretty concisely and straightforward and clear um, what it is that you're looking at. And the terminology is actually very easy to understand. Um, So for those reasons, 
And for the basic beginner user of someone who's tracking their performance at the outset, I cannot recommend it enough. However, once you sort of outgrow it and graduate, there's a few other apps out there that can do a better job for you. Um, to possibly, eh, two for sure that I can definitely recommend is one, uh, Garmin and Wahoo, they both actually have great uh, in-house apps that do sort of monitor your day-to-day fitness, uh, depending on your fitness ability and this and that and what activity you're doing. It's that last little bit uh, mentioned there does have an asterisk on it. Uh, It does depend on your activity and how you can quantify that. Uh, If you're just measuring your cardio, but you're taking into account that it is maybe, say, strength training, uh, maybe if it's swimming, um, all those different variables of the activity itself can actually affect your cardio output. So it can be slightly different uh, based on that. Um, So that being said, uh, the in-house apps that come for a lot of devices are actually very good and very user rich, I would call it. Um, But sometimes it can be a little too much information. That being said, uh, Strava is a great sort of depository. If you're just getting into it, it's a great repository of that data. So that way it makes it pretty easy to understand. And at a quick glance, you can understand quite a bit of where you're at. Um, The second app uh, feature that I would really recommend to a lot of folks is Training Peaks. Um, Sadly, I don't have a promo code to hand out to you so that way you can take advantage of it. But the premium feature set from Training Peaks um, is actually very, very user-friendly. And it's really great to actually, if you're one to set goals, say a, a race or an event um, for yourself and you target and you know the exact date um, and sort of the small goals that you're wanting to say, either just finish the event, uh, finish it in particular time, uh, finish it at a particular power or speed, etc., etc. That's realistic. If you know yourself, you can set those goals for you and if you need help they do have coaching features that you can plug into and that is a real coach actually looking at your data um, helping you uh, potentially stay motivated uh, on task maybe even suggesting workouts and it could be a great sort of lifeline to structured training and coaching in that regard they just released a, a new feature in training peaks that actually asks you uh, how you felt and it's rated by emoji smiley face uh, to sad face slash fry, uh, frowny face I think it's crying actually too I have, I have I haven't touched the crying one because I don't think I've cried I've sweated a lot and I might be frowning but I don't think I've actually been crying um, and you can actually on a sliding scale rate where you sort of fit emotionally on that level and then there's the perceived effort which goes from a cool blue sort of uh, effort on, uh, I think it starts at one and it goes all the way up to 10, uh, which would be red hot, uh, in terms of color, uh, sorry, color spectrum there. And I think those are actually great little metrics to actually sort of give yourself an, an idea of when you were pushing yourself, maybe when you felt fresh mentally, uh, focus, if that was on task, uh, if you felt motivated, all those different things, those are actually some things that you can uh, maybe start knowing about yourself when it comes to that performance. And for those reasons, I find that as you graduate from Strava Summit uh, and 
move forward in terms of your performance and uh, growing as potentially a performance athlete. Uh, didn't say you had to be pro. I'm just saying you had to take it seriously. Um, and you're tracking your your actual gains and fitness uh, throughout a year. It's also to maybe get good to get a good sense of how you feel mentally and also your perceived effort while you were doing the actual workout um, to check it out in retrospect of how maybe in contrast you did one workout versus the same workout uh, six weeks later. Um, those are all just good things to sort of keep in mind. Um, that's it for the podcast. So hopefully you enjoyed it. Here we go. Hey, podcast listeners, thank you very much for listening to the Bike Shop Boyfriend podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave a rating wherever you are enjoying this podcast. If it's on iTunes, it would be the world to me if you could leave me a rating, as well as on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you are listening to this podcast. I highly appreciate it, and stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you very much. Yeah.